the psalm, if you happen to look at it, um, is the whole psalm there on your page, so it's a pretty short one. And so, rather than belaboring words and phrases and so forth in the psalm, I did want to, as we look at the psalm, I believe, Psalm 67, that we see that the emphasis comes in the middle portion of the psalm, um, specifically there where it talks about the idea of God judging the peoples with uprightness and guiding the nations on the earth. Uh, so, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. It seems to be sort of an introductory refrain to the psalm as opposed to uh, being part of the overall structure. A lot of times in a psalm you'll have parallelism. You know, one phrase kind of mirrors another. So, for example, that your way may be known on the earth and that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. Those two phrases kind of pair up uh, where it says, let the peoples praise you, verse 3. And in verse 5, those clearly, I think, match up with each other. And so I think that parallelism between verses 2 and 7 kind of centers on God's judging the people in uprightness and guiding the nations on the earth. And so what I wanted us to do was to have a little bit of the context behind the psalm. Uh, with a psalm, it's clearly it's situated in the larger collection of psalms, but it's also situated in the experiences of God's people Israel. Uh, so when they see a phrase like, God will judge the people with uprightness, there's a whole lot of things that as they think back over their history are going to come to mind. So it's not just as though that phrase stands in isolation by itself. And so the reason that I think that's important is we have, I think, a right tendency to want to look at a passage just in and of itself. What does this mean right here in this place? But when you have such a short psalm, a short expression of things, when this is a, a book of praise for the nation of Israel directed toward God, it's set in that larger context of how God has behaved toward His people up to that point, right? And so what I want us to do is see some of those examples from earlier in Scripture. Uh, first of all, from Numbers, we'll see this blessing. We could call it there in verse 1. So if you would like turn over to number 6, I'll read it for you there. But number 6 says at the end of the chapter, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, verse 24, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I then will bless them. You'll notice in Psalm 67, the blessing is cut short, right? The psalmist begins with the first part of the blessing, and then it flows into this expression, a desire that God would be known, all would fear Him, and that God would be praised, and all of that centered on who God is, what His character is like. And so I think the psalmist is taking this, blessing from the end of the Numbers chapter 6 and sort of springboarding off of it into this expression of praise toward God. Where else do we see similar ideas? Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 1, just a few pages over. And we have a description of what God wanted His people to do with regard to judgment. Same kind of word we see here describing God. So Deuteronomy 
I charged your judges at this time, hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. And so we see here Moses speaking to the people of Israel and saying, I, in some respect, am setting for you an example of what God's judgment is like. And you are supposed to follow my example and ultimately God's example when it came to disputes between the people of Israel. So clearly in the Pentateuch, Leviticus, well starting in Exodus, but also Leviticus and Deuteronomy develop it even more. There's all these laws. But if you've ever encountered a law, what do you eventually run into? A situation that doesn't quite seem to match up with what's already written down, right? And so there were situations where they knew what God had said to do in a particular circumstance, but there's some difficulty about the case. That's when they brought it to the leaders of the people. And if the leaders of the people couldn't figure it out, they would bring to Moses, and Moses would consult with God if needed. Think back to um, what Moses, his father-in-law, had recommended to him. Don't hear every single case. You act basically like the Supreme Court would today. You deal with the really important, the really big cases. Let them deal with the other matters that maybe the person who's not as well trained in the law might not have all of the insight to figure out, but the leaders who are more well-versed with it, they should be able to figure it out and, and lead the people in that respect. And so then we come to, from Deuteronomy 1, uh, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, certainly I'm not looking at every case where this word's used in the Old Testament. I think there's 230 times a form of this word is used in the Old Testament, so we're not going to look at all of them, but I'm trying to give you sort of a brief survey of them. In 1 Samuel 8, we have the situation that in the book of Judges, this idea of judgment, of judging, pops up a lot, right? They're the ones who are administrating God's purpose and ruling over the people. That's the two ideas that we see united in uh, Psalm 67. God judges, God guides. That's what the judges did in the book of Judges. We come now to 1 Samuel. Samuel is the last of those judges. And what do the people say to Samuel, particularly in verse 5? 1 Samuel 8, 5. They said to him, You've grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Who ultimately was the one who was judging God's people and ruling over them and guiding them? God was supposed to be, and he was doing it by means of Samuel. And so there's uh, this sort of heartbreak on Samuel's part, and he says, God, what they're asking doesn't seem right. And Samuel prays to the Lord. And verse 7, you're familiar with this, they have not rejected you, but rejected me from being king over them, even as though they have from Egypt forsaken me and served other gods. Now they're doing this to you also. And so then he talks about all the downsides of having a king in verses 10 to 18. And they said, No, but there shall be a king that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So, Think back as you, what we looked at in Genesis. Were there any indications in the book of Genesis what 
God's plan was with regard to the ruling of his people. Did God want his people to be ruled by a king? What's that? Okay. Okay, eventually. Are there any hints from going through Genesis that you guys remember? Yes. But even in Genesis, so that would be Exodus. No, no, but, but even in Genesis, do we have any hints of the idea of a king? Paul? Okay. Okay. Okay, so it seems to be maybe an implication of ruling or at least of dominion, defeating him in battle kind of an idea. Right. Yes, but my question is, we usually hear that and we're like, why could they possibly want a king? That, that's foolishness. They've got Samuel, they have God, why do they need a king? But I think there's hints before that, earlier in the Bible, that would lead us to believe God wants them to have a king at some point. Paul. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In some of the covenants he makes with Abraham, there's these hints of dominion and rulership. Kings will come forth from you, right? Um, think about what we looked at just recently at the end of Genesis. Genesis, I think it was 49. What did he say about Judah? The scepter will not depart from between his feet until Shiloh comes, right? So I think that as we look through the Old Testament, um, it's interesting. There's, um, I'm not sure that I agree with everything in the book largely because I haven't read it, but there was a fellow who wrote a book, and the title of his book is Dominion and Dynasty, and it's sort of supposed to be a biblical theology of, I believe, the Old Testament. Um, I think those themes run through the Old Testament, and the reason that I bring that up is the issue is not should the Israelites um, sort of be without authority over them. That, that was never the issue. The issue is, what should that authority be like? And so what we're going to see, what we, I think we know from just all the Bible stories we're familiar with, um, we see that those who are supposed to be exercising righteous judgment and guiding God's people failed to do so well. Particularly with someone like Saul, right? Particularly with a bunch of the kings that we see in Kings and Chronicles, right? They were supposed to be judging the people rightly, even in David's own time. Think about what his son Absalom is doing. The king, he's not going to judge your case fairly. So come over to me, I'll help you out, right? So there's that undermining of judgment. Yes? Right.
So, theologians have made a distinction between God's decreed will and God's desired will. Um, even, you know, Dr. John Piper, I think, makes that distinction. I'm not sure, I mean, I get why we do that in our minds, because it's hard for us to reconcile things that seem incompatible. But when it comes to something like, there are passages that seem to indicate God wants everybody to be saved, right? And there are passages where it says not everyone will be saved. And so one of the common explanations is, well, one is what God wants to happen, and the other is what God has said will happen. And I think we have to be careful drawing too sharp a line between those two things, because the reason that we have those conflicts in our mind is lack of knowledge, lack of power, some sort of um, sinful tendency in ourselves, right? But I don't think that exists for God. Uh, with Going back to Genesis 49, I think God seems to honor all the things that Jacob said. God goes beyond what Jacob said, or, or sort of turns the purpose of what Jacob said to ultimately accomplish all these other things. Like, I think in Jacob's mind, he probably wanted to see Joseph's descendants be the most prominent in Israel, right? Maybe. We, we get a little bit of that sense based on how he acted earlier in the book, and just the outpouring of blessing toward Ephraim and Manasseh in 48 and in 49. But God does let them become the most numerous of the tribes, right? So God honors Jacob's blessing in that respect. Um, God's ultimate purpose, though, I think, just like he said from Abraham, from you will come forth kings, his ultimate fulfillment of that is in David and then ultimately in Christ, right? So... Um, I don't know if that answers what you're saying, but... Sure, sure, sure. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, I guess what I would say is Jacob's blessing is they are empty words unless God fulfills it, right? And so in that respect, I don't know if I would call it prophecy, but I would definitely say God's power stands behind it, yes. And ultimately, like you're saying, there really is no delineation in the end, right? Yeah. Right. And that's the, the pattern. And that seems to be one of the purposes of having uh, men as kings to show that of man rule. Sure. So if anything, it's ultimately hard to explain anyway. Right, right. I, I think it's worth trying to understand, but yeah, I mean, I, I think in the end there is not a disconnect between what God wants to happen and what does happen, broadly speaking. Uh, the idea of God being the judge, God being the ruler, that comes up often in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 9 and verse 4, You have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You've rebuked the nations. You've destroyed the wicked. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. Uh, Psalm 9-8, I think, is even more clear as a parallel to what we see in Psalm 67. He will judge the world in righteousness 
He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Uh, and then also verse 19, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Um, obviously the text we're in, Psalm 67, but then even a little bit later, Psalm 96 says in verse 13, Before the Lord, for He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And then chapter 98, Psalm 98, verse 9. Before the Lord, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And then um, we also see this theme picked up in the prophets. Uh, for example, Isaiah. And this is where I think this turns... Um, so we have this idea of judgment, righteous judgment in the Old Testament. It's the way that Abraham and his descendants were supposed to behave. It's what the judges were supposed to do, which they more or less did for brief periods of time, and then the people turned away from God. It's what the people wanted their king to do, even though those often didn't do it. It's what the Psalms describe is supposed to be characteristic of God. But then we come to the prophets, specifically like in Isaiah, and we see a uniting of the king with God from the perspective of both Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11. Isaiah 2 says in, let's see, verse 4, He will judge between the nations, will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. And then Isaiah 11, the prophecy of the righteous branch. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now, when we get into Isaiah, we're obviously going into what is most likely future of what... We don't have a date on Psalm 67, so I don't know this absolutely. But potentially, we are now at a future point relative to what the psalmist is describing in uh, Psalm 67. But I'm just trying to show that this theme continues throughout the Old Testament. It picks up again in Zechariah. We won't turn there for sake of time. It picks up in, for example, Matthew 7, that famous passage that people like to quote when they don't agree with what you're saying, judge not so that you will not be judged. All right, so there's, there's, two Hebrew, there's a Hebrew word and a Greek word that seem to be parallel. I can't pronounce the Hebrew one. The Greek one is something like krino, and that one we see in Matthew 7. We see it in John 5. Uh, turn to John 5, because I think this one really develops this idea well. John 5, um, down around verse, let's see here, I think, oh, yeah, yep, I was, I skipped over to 6, and I was like, did I write down the wrong verse? <laughs> uh, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
And then a little bit later, verse 27, God gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verses 28-29, the resurrection uh, to life and toward judgment. Verse 30, I do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. It's just. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, the point that I'm trying to make is this. Psalm 67 expresses a gladness on the part of the nations that there is finally righteous judgment, fair justice, um, proper guidance overall. And when he says the nations in the psalm, generally speaking, that's sort of like a broad look at the peoples of the earth, not just the Israelites, because I think it's clear as you go through the Old Testament, God's judge over his people, like that's kind of in the back of hopefully all the believing Israelites' minds all the way through the Old Testament, right? But this idea that it is also affecting the nations, we see in the psalm, we see picked up in the prophets, we see made very clear in a passage like John 5. Um, Paul alludes to it in Acts 17.31. He talks to the Romans about it in Romans 2. This idea of when Jesus comes and, and judges men by the gospel that I have proclaimed. 1 Corinthians 4 is a recognition that judgment is not ours, but God's. Don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who brings to light the things hidden and discloses the motives. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. And then Revelation 19 uh, interestingly enough, has significant parallels with that psalm that we, oh, with what it says in Isaiah 2, for example. But the part that we often skip over in Revelation 19 is actually the end of verse 18, uh, chapter 18, Babylon's fallen, right? And then the beginning of Revelation 19. There's a voice of a great multitude. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Then the marriage of the lamb. Then we jump down to verse 11. Behold a white horse, he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, I saw an interesting blog article the other day, and the guy was basically arguing, when he says rod of iron, we shouldn't think of it with a negative connotation. We should think of it more like a shepherd's crook. But the whole connotation of this section is like judgment against sin, right? So... I'm not sure that that is warranted in the text. Why do I mention Revelation? Why do I mention all these things? Here's the theme that unites them all together. In Revelation 19, it's very clearly described that in Jesus Christ coincide salvation, glory, power, judgment, ruling, guiding, 
All of those things come together in Christ. How then does that tie in to Psalm 67? Well, the way that it ties in with Psalm 67 is that I think the psalmist is anticipating that God will continue to be the same in his righteous character toward the nations of the world, including the Israelites. What's involved with this? An increasing awareness of God and his ways, verse 2. A fear of God, verse 7. A response of praise by the people who I think receive that salvation of verse 2. A recognition that the blessings that they receive are from God. And all of this is rooted and centered and based on what God is like. You will judge the peoples with uprightness. You will guide the nations on the earth. This was true when God was working in and through Abraham. This was true when God works through the judges. This is true when God works through David. This is true whenever the psalmist writes, presumably at some point after David, but probably before the exile. It's true in the prophets. It's made very specific in passages like John 5 and some of the things that Paul says and what Revelation says about Jesus and what he's going to come and be and do. And so in the Old Testament, there's sort of this parallel track happening, right? God is judging the people, and a specific figurehead is judging the people. Abraham, Moses, the judges, the king, David. Then we get to the prophets, and we sort of see them starting to converge, right? In the description of the righteous branch, the one who's going to come. And then in John 5, Jesus says... God's given judgment to me. And what is Jesus? Jesus is the heir of David. So finally, in one person, we have united the kingship and the authority for judgment in a way that will be perfect, unlike anyone who's come before him. And then that's described even further in Revelation 19. So, how do we apply a passage like this? Well, I think the first thing that we have to do is to recognize that if we're going to receive any kind of a blessing, it ultimately comes from God. The Israelites, the priests, were supposed to speak this blessing upon God's people. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. That blessing was specifically directed toward God's people, Israel. But we see similar benedictions in the New Testament. And so I think it would be right and proper for us to see those requests for God's blessing on his people as good things that we ought to invoke, ask God to do, and receive, seeing God's blessing on us. I think the main focus, though, of Psalm 67 is that we ought to recognize who God is. What is God like? He judges in uprightness. And this is another of those things where we talked about there sort of seeming to be this disconnect for most of the Old Testament, and then it starts to come together. 
the same thing is true, I think, with this idea of judgment. We hear judgment and we think negatively, right? Because we mostly think of what it says like in the prophets, or some of the things that we see, Babylon has fallen, God has cast her down, right? But think about all the examples earlier in Israel's history of what judgment looked like. Moses deciding cases among the people. He's not looking at the people and saying, I'm going to destroy you, right? He's looking at the people and he's saying, here's the right path, here's the right way to go. Jesus, in his role as judge, as ruler, will bring the nations to their knees, but will lead them in the right way. And that's where, again, I think those two ideas coincide because a lot of times you had sort of an either-or. There was the person who was deciding a case or is the person who is executing judgment. But in Christ specifically, it's united perfectly and there's no injustice in it. That same idea of guiding, there's a bunch of passages along those lines, but God used different people to guide his people. Jesus is going to do it perfectly. And so I think for us, we see how this has unfolded a little bit more than when the psalmist wrote Psalm 67. But we haven't arrived yet at Revelation 19. And so we still, I think as the psalmist did, anticipate and even long for the day in which there is a clear judgment of God and a clear leadership of God over the earth to which all submit. Um, I was watching the news briefly because we were trying to watch a thing um, that talked about Maggie and the art program at the hospital that she participated in. And I was getting frustrated because like 20 minutes was going on and on about this candidate's dropped out of the presidential race and that one's thrown their support behind this other one and all these other sorts of things. We don't live in a world that is governed perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, right? But we long for and yearn for a day in which that will be the case. I think verses 2 and 7 ought to have particular significance for us as well. What has God called us to do in the Great Commission? Make disciples, which sounds a lot like that your way may be known on the earth, that all the ends of the earth may fear him. So I think there ought to be a little bit of an evangelistic zeal that's stirred up in us as we read a passage like Psalm 67. So we long for the rulership of God. We see that part of how God brings us about is through the proclamation of the gospel. By that I don't mean the post-millennial idea that if we get enough people saved, then God's obligated to come back. I just mean God is calling out a people for himself, and he does so by means of the gospel in this present day and time. And then I think verse 3 and verse 5, we can certainly do, right? As we are overwhelmed with the greatness of God and see the unfolding of his plan even maybe a little bit more clearly than the author of Psalm 67 did, we ought to praise God. Let the nations, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. And then verse 6 ties back to verse 1. God, our God, blesses us. So, if you had to say, 
What is this psalm talking about? It's all pointing to God. God's the source of blessing. God's the hope for righteous leadership and judgment. God is the one who needs to be known in the earth. God is the one who we ought to praise. But even in a short psalm like this, it picks up themes that we see all throughout the Bible. And while clearly a bunch of the passages we looked at are future from the perspective of this psalm, and some of them are even future from our perspective, the thing that I'm trying to help us to see is the unity of Scripture, the way that even a brief text like this ties together important themes about God as who He is and what He's doing in the world, and even what He's doing in the world in and through you and I. So, God judges the people with uprightness and guides the nations on the earth. He has been doing that from the beginning. He will do it even more clearly as we approach the end of time. We seek His blessing. We proclaim His name. We praise Him because He's the righteous King. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us to see all these many threads that we sort of picked up little pieces of here and bring them all together and walk away and say there's so much more here that we could look at about who you are, even just in this one specific aspect of your character, that you are the, the upright judge, that you are the righteous guide. I pray that we would be stirred to understand these things better, to, like the people of Israel, seek your blessing, Tell others who you are of your greatness, praise you, and long for the day when you will reign and lead even more clearly than you do now. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.